Welcome, foolish mortals. I mean, hey there, kindred spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, Spooky Edition, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables and ghosts. I'm I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Regan Duffy. Hello, kindred spirits. Today on the pod, we are going to be talking about all the creepy gothic stories woven into Windy Poplars for our special Halloween edition. Reagan, it's the most wonderful time of the year. What's going on at your house for Halloween? Shouldn't you have more of like a Halloween-y song? This is Halloween. This (laughs) This is is Halloween. Halloween. (laughs) Well, Halloween is probably not my favorite holiday. I mean, I like it just fine, but it's nowhere close to the anticipation I feel for Christmas. I think it's because, you know, my daughter and I both have September birthdays and then December is a huge month for us between my husband's birthday, Christmas and Hanukkah and all the fun winter holiday traditions we like to do and traveling and seeing family. So I kind of don't like a fuss for Halloween. But this year, so my husband has really, really wanted to have a Halloween party for the last couple of years, and I have discouraged it, but he really loves decorating for Halloween. He especially loves leaning in on the spooky, creepy side. He and our daughter are hard at work transforming our backyard into a haunted garden. Love it. He's made a huge spider webs cave to walk through, complete with an enormous spider wrapping up a body in webbing. I know. And spider eggs full of baby spiders. We have the headless saloon with a skeleton bartender serving drinks. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And a lot of other stuff. It's gonna, it's coming together really well. It's going to look very cool. My contribution, besides occasionally offering some opinions, is going to be showing up and being a good host. Right. Someone's got to <laughs> do that part. Right. I don't know what I'll wear yet, though. I've got a variety of costume pieces from various years past, but I don't know if I want to use one of those or something new. I got a few more weeks before I have to decide. How about you? Well, as you know, I really, really love Halloween and my husband and I tend to lean in pretty hard. I'm actually of the mind that like Halloween kind of starts right after Labor Day. So that's when I'm going to take out my Halloween decorations. I don't do it all at once, but I will gradually start to sort of incorporate things until I get the house uh, decorated to my gothy specifications. And my husband and I really like to have a lot of fun in October. So we go to haunted houses, we go to spooky plays, and we really love Love like an escape room or one of those immersive horror experiences that are kind of like a combination of all those things, right? Oh my God. <laughs> That's like my nightmare. Oh no, we love it. <laughs> And then another tradition that we've started more recent years is we have made a list of 100 scary movies, and then we roll a 100-sided die to see which one we will watch for every night of October. And I'll say that my threshold for horror movies is actually kind of low. I like a little bit of a thriller, like chilling, spine-tingling, but I don't really like gore. I don't really like anything too crazy violent. So a lot of these movies tend to be sort of in that sweet spot between cute, fun, Halloween-y, and maybe a little chill. We do a fair amount of Hitchcock with those, a lot of sort of like 80s creature features, you know, just anything that feels kind of nostalgic and fun for us. Is Um, Gremlins on the menu? uh, We already watched Gremlins too. That was the first thing we rolled. And so we knew it was going to be a great Halloween. (laughs) Gremlins is one of our absolute favorite movies. So Gremlins is actually a Christmas movie, Reagan, but Gremlins 2 is a Halloween movie. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 
So on top of the fact that I love Halloween at home, my office also has a tradition of going pretty big for Halloween. We throw a big party and my department particularly always likes to do a big group costume. So this year we decided that we're all going to be different superheroes and we're going to choose superhero names and powers that relate to what we do for work. It's going to be pretty creative and fun. We still have a little bit more kind of figuring out what all that's going to look like. And I am definitely still on the lookout for a perfect superhero costume. So let's transition from our Halloween chit chat to our episode proper, in which we deep dive into all the tragedies of Windy Poplars. We talked before about how Windy Poplars seems to have a different feel, maybe a heavier feel than the other Anne books. And one of the reasons for that is the way that Maude has gone hard into some of these tragic and gruesome portrayals of the residents of Summerside. It's played for a certain amount of comedy by dint of the sheer volume of tragedy. But if you stop to think about it, there are actually a lot of very sad stories here. So we thought that we would pull together a couple of chapters, lean into the spooky side of things and give you all a special Halloween episode. I know you have been so excited for this episode. This is the best part, Kindred Spirits. I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit. So when Reagan and I were plotting out our coverage for Windy Poplars, we really didn't know what to do with these two chapters because they felt like total outliers to us. And then we realized that we were going to be talking about Windy Poplars a lot in October. And I said, wait a second. These are spooky chapters. These are the Halloween episode. (laughs) We can have a Halloween episode. Absolutely. Our kindred spirit is Miss Minerva Tomgallon, the last of the wealthy and prominent Tomgallon family who lives in a veritable haunted mansion and has loads of grim and creepy stories about the bizarre and tragic deaths in her family. We'll go into more detail in the episode about Miss Minerva, but we love her in part because she thinks she's in a different book altogether. Not a collection of regionalist stories about a small town, but rather a gloomy gothic melodrama where her doomed family takes center stage. Even ultra-creative Anne couldn't have imagined Miss Minerva Tomgallon if she tried. For our quote of the episode, we're going to do something a little different than usual and pull a quote from a different book. This quote is from very early on in Anne of Green Gables, but it signals Anne's interest in death and hauntings and ghosts and witchiness and other eerily romantic things. Anne says to Marilla, Well, that is another hope gone. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. That's a sentence I read in a book once, and I say it over to comfort myself whenever I'm disappointed in anything. I don't see where the comforting comes in myself, said Marilla. Why? because it sounds so nice and romantic. Just as if I were a heroine in a book, you know? I am so fond of romantic things. And a graveyard full of buried hopes is about as romantic a thing as one can imagine, isn't it? And sure enough, even adult Anne will enjoy living in proximity to graveyards. Remember her first year at Redmond when Anne and Priscilla's boarding house was across the street from a graveyard and that Anne would love to take walks in it? Although in Windy Poplars, Anne no longer seems to think of death as a romantic or desirable outcome, she does enjoy a good graveyard ramble still. I mean, who among us does not? And now for Scary Story Club, kindred spirits, let's spend some time with the gothic, macabre, and creepy anecdotes that Anne encounters during her time at Windy Poplars for this Halloween special. One of the things we've known about Anne since she was a kid at Green Gables is how much she finds things that are a little frightful or unnatural kind of fascinating and romantic. Think about the haunted wood in which Anne and Diana, but be honest, mostly Anne, invented so many ghosts that live in the spruce grove between their two farms. They scare themselves so thoroughly they can no longer go through it at night. 
Anne invents the white lady who wails and cries and appears along the brook when there is to be a death in the family. And she invents the ghost of a murdered child who creeps up behind you and lays its cold fingers on your neck. She's enthralled with the tragic tale of the Lily Maid Elaine dying of a broken heart. And in Story Club, Anne ends all her stories with tragic deaths. And a lot of kids are intrigued by the macabre and the scary. Think about the popularity of Goosebumps books and scary stories to read in the dark. Oh, I loved those. Yeah, Kelly, I know. That doesn't surprise (laughs) me at all. (laughs) When you're a kid, death is abstract and interesting, not truly real. It's a taboo, so it's kind of fun to push the boundaries around that for shock and awe. And for a kid as enamored of the romantic and the melodramatic as Anne, death is just another landscape for her imagination to embellish. Even as Anne grows up, we still see this fascination with death woven into her growth arc. Remember that Anne becomes fixated on Hester Gray's garden and her tragically young death in Anne of Avonlea. She can truly see the delicate young bride in her garden, and Anne believes in her heart of hearts that Hester's early death, surrounded by roses and attended by her young husband, is the pinnacle of romance. And in Anne of the Island, Anne's romanticization of death is reframed by reality as she witnesses her childhood friend Ruby dying from tuberculosis. Ruby fights valiantly to ignore her death sentence, and her performative gaiety seems gruesome to Anne. What Ruby eventually confesses to Anne is how afraid she is to die. Not that she's afraid she won't go to heaven. She's distraught at missing out on so much of her earthly, prosy, everyday life. She wants to be married and have babies and have a little house and a commonplace life full of friends and parties and laughter. She's not yearning for the grand and romantic that Anne is holding out for. Ruby just wants to get to live. Ruby's death is tragic because she's aware that she'll miss out on all those things and everyone else will keep on living. And that was not the way that Anne conceptualized death as a kid. Also in Anne of the Island, we really get that stark comparison when Anne and Stella read over Anne's old story club entries. Anne shares her most tear-soaked melodramatic story entitled My Graves, in which she imagines a minister's wife who had 10 children and each of them die in a different tragic manner and each is buried in a different town. The humor comes not just from the idea of a child writing this story, clearly for the shock value. But when Anne confesses that she ran out of ways to kill the children, and so she had to leave the last alive, but suffering permanent injury from an unnamed tragedy. Oh, boy, Anne. We see in Windy Poplars that perhaps Maud has decided to lean into the My Graves model of storytelling and really inundate Anne with the most macabre, creepy, and gothic of tragedies. After this, Anne would never dare to write a story like My Graves. In Windy Poplars, we have a couple of chapters that fall into this vein of storytelling. Now, if you remember, back in our Windy Poplars recap episode, we mentioned that Anne of Windy Poplars was originally titled Anne of Windy Willows. Maud's American publisher thought that that was too close to the childhood classic A Wind in the Willows. And he also asked her to take out some details that he deemed a little too gruesome or terrifying for a book about a beloved childhood heroine. The UK publisher had no such qualms, so the book remained Windy Willows and the chapters were left unedited. So we will be sure to highlight what are the things that had been left out of the Windy Poplars version. From the very beginning of Windy Poplars, we are told that Summerside is a town in which family history, family connections, and family identity are of paramount importance. And so many of Anne's encounters with the residents of Summerside emphasize this theme. We learn about the infamous Pringles right away, known for steadfast loyalty to the clan and the way they revere the family patriarch. 
Captain Abraham Pringle. The terrible Mrs. Gibson loves talking about people's families and attributes every character trait as predestined because of who the family is. People throughout the book are always talking about who is related to whom and what certain families are known for. One evening in November, in Anne's first year at Windy Poplars, Anne is feeling rather downhearted by the whole Pringle situation and decides to take a stroll in the old graveyard, as you do. Quote, she was feeling for the time so dispirited and hopeless that she thought a graveyard would be a comparatively cheerful place. Beside, it was full of Pringles, so Rebecca Dew said, and felt that it would be positively encouraging to see how many Pringles were where they couldn't annoy anyone anymore. <laughs> Anne is really at the end of her rope with the Pringle family at this point. And there in the graveyard, Anne runs into a Miss Valentine Cordelo, who is the local dressmaker, and luckily someone who, quote, has not a drop of Pringle blood in her. Miss Cordelo proceeds to give Anne a tour all through the graveyard, sharing the weirdest, eeriest, most tragic stories of the families buried there. There are lots of Pringles to talk about, of course, but Miss Cordelo seems strangely proud that she has had a lot of funerals in her family. When Anne remarks that's probably true for every old family, we get this little gem. Don't tell me any family ever had as many as ours, said Miss Valentine jealously. We're very consumptive. Most of us died of a cough. I like that her point of family pride is how many of her family members have died, <laughs> specifically of consumption. What? Honestly, weird flex, right? Weird flex. So we are not going to tell you about each and every person who is buried there because it's a lot. But we do have a few sections that have been edited out of Windy Poplars but survived in the Windy Willows edition. And we want to highlight some of those, as well as some ones that are in both books, but we find particularly affecting. So here's one of Miss Cordelow's family stories, and this has been taken out for the North American versions. This is Aunt Cora's grave. She was a great beauty. A minister we had in Summerside then told her that just to see her made a poem of his day. That was a pretty speech, wasn't it? Though I never felt it was just the thing for a minister to say. Aunt Cora married a Yankee and lived all her life in Boston. But when she came back to the island for a visit and saw this old graveyard, she turned and said to her husband, you can bury me here, Thomas. So he did. Not immediately, of course, but three years later when she died. I don't know. This one doesn't seem particularly gruesome to me. Maybe not. But I have to wonder, where did Thomas keep Aunt Cora's body for three years? <laughs> I think she meant that Aunt Cora didn't die for another three years. Oh. <laughs> and then he buried her. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. So I think the not immediately means like not immediately after she said that. Mm -hmm. As opposed to not immediately after she died. Okay. I read that very differently. And maybe that's how the American editor read it as well. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Maybe he's thinking about Aunt Cora's, Aunt Cora's husband keeping her body like just sitting around in Boston until he can get up to Summerside to bury it. It was hard to make travel plans back then. He just like, <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Also, question about this. Is Aunt Cora's name Cora Cordelo? Because if so, I have questions. <laughs> Maybe before she got married. So another snippet that was removed from the American edition is this. Here is Uncle Jack's grave. He was sort of absent-minded, so he married the wrong woman, but he never let her guess it. He was very gentlemanly. The man in this grave was my cousin Dora's first husband's brother's first wife's first husband. I don't know how he came to be buried in our plot, to be sure. Miss Valentine stooped to pull some weeds away from her absent-minded uncle's grave, and Anne utilized the blank space in recovering from her dizziness over such a genealogical tangle. There's a couple moments here to parse through. He married the wrong woman. I don't know how that happened. Did he just show up at, at church on the wrong day? It's just okay. married a different oh. lady. 
Um, oh, Helen. I thought it was Ellen. Whoops. Oh, gosh. Whoops. <laughs> well, we're here anyway. Well, yeah, exactly. The preacher's already paid for. Might as well just go through with it. And then the genealogical tangle. I've puzzled through this a bit. So cousin Dora had a sister-in-law, right? That's her husband's brother's wife is Dora's sister-in-law. And Dora is buried next to that sister-in-law's first husband, which is truly a strange family connection. We also get a little reminder from Miss Cordelo about how important family reputation is as she shares Frank Digby over in that corner under the sumacs wanted me. I did feel a little regretful over refusing him, but a Digby, my dear. Oh, a Digby, heaven forfend. So this next one that has been edited out does seem like it fits the criteria of being a little bit creepy. This is my cousin Noble Cordelo's grave. We were always a little afraid he was buried alive. He looked so lifelike, but nobody thought of it till it was too late. That was sad, said Anne idiotically. She knew she was expected to say something whenever Miss Valentine paused expectantly, but it seemed absolutely impossible to think of anything appropriate. Yeah, any kind of buried alive story is always a little shivery. And we also get some more examples of the Pringle family reputation as Miss Cordelo shares Old Mrs. Russell Pringle is here. I often wonder if she's in heaven or not. But why? gasped a rather shocked Anne. Well, she always hated her sister Marianne, who had died a few months before. If Marianne is in heaven, I won't stay there, says she. And she was a woman who always kept her word, my dear. Pringle-like. She was born a Pringle and married her cousin Russell. I mean, that section really just goes to the overall theme of family identity in this book, right? It is so important to the Summerside town folk, and it's something that outsider Anne is consistently running up against. Okay, I'm going to read another little anecdote, and you can see why someone might have thought this was a little too terrifying for this sort of lighthearted romp of a book that the Anne series was more known for, so this part was also edited out. This is where Stephen Pringle is buried. They couldn't get his eyes closed. He was buried with them wide open. Anne shivered. She had a dreadful vision of the dead Pringle lying under the sod, still staring balefully upward at her, out of eyes that had never been closed. He was killed, you know, said Miss Valentine, fell from a ladder he was climbing. It was said, Miss Valentine lowered her voice creepily among the gathering shadows, that his cousin, Black Joe Card, Stephen's mother was a card, fixed one of the steps so that he would fall. He and Joe were courting the same girl. I never believed it myself. People say such terrible things, don't they? But it certainly made Black Joe more interesting. I used to look at him in church and wonder if it was true. Perhaps it was. And that was why Stephen's eyes couldn't be closed. Helen Avery is here. She died twice. At least they thought she died. But she revived when they were laying her out. Next time she died, four years later, her husband was away. But he telegraphed home, make sure she's dead before you go to any expense. Oh, my God. (laughs) These are properly creepy. I mean, the dead man with the open eye, the woman who died twice. Anne is deeply affected by the story that Miss Cordelo tells of Mr. and Mrs. James Morley, buried side by side after being married 50 years, but hating each other all the while. According to Miss Cordelo, hating each other bitterly, my dear, everyone knew it. They had for years and years, almost all their married life, in fact. They quarreled on the way home from church after the wedding. I often wonder how they managed to lie here so peaceably side by side. Anne is horrified by this, and she tries to imagine living every day with someone you hate so deeply when it had started out as love. She shivers as she tries to imagine if that could ever happen to her and Gilbert. And now this is Kelly's favorite Miss Cordelo story. (laughs) Quote, there used to be a stone here for John McTabb's Uncle Samuel, who was reported drowned at sea 50 years ago. When he turned up alive, the family took the stone down. 
The man they bought it from wouldn't take it back, so Mrs. Samuel used it for a baking board. Talk about a marble slab for mixing on. That old tombstone was just fine, she said. The McTab children are always bringing cookies to school with raised letters and figures on them, scraps of the epitaph. They gave them away, real generous, but I never could bring myself to eat one. I love that one. I would absolutely love to see one of those ghoulish little cookies. And you know what? I was thinking about this. I'm almost inspired by this story to try making my own tombstone epitaph cookies. Right? You just have to figure out a way to like carve away so that way there'd be like a raised letter somehow. I don't know. I need to think about it a little bit. We might need a mold. It would look very cute. So Anne and Miss Cordelow end the graveyard tour by the enormous monument to Captain Abraham Pringle, which Anne thinks is quite ugly, but is clearly admired by everyone else, looming large over the graveyard just as the Pringle family looms large over Summerside and Anne's life. Maud gives us a little callback to My Graves and Anne's other tragic stories as Miss Cordelow asks Anne, You won't put the things I've told you in your stories, will you? Anne is not tempted, not even a little bit. I have to say, I get the sense that Miss Cordelow would like Anne to write about some of these stories. She seems to take a lot of pride in the legends of Summerside's departed citizens, or at least in her role as the teller of those stories, right? Absolutely. When Anne relays this encounter to Gilbert in a letter, she says, quote, It sounds funny to say I enjoyed my stroll in the graveyard, but I really did. Miss Cordelow's stories were so funny. Comedy and tragedy are so mixed up in life, Gilbert. The only thing that haunts me is the tale of the two who lived together 50 years and hated each other all that time. She concludes with a rather snarky quip, at least for Anne. And I have found out that there are some decent Pringles, dead ones. Which is, you know... (laughs) It's a little out of character for our friend Anne, but I think that that goes to show how much the Pringles were plaguing her at this point in the book. Yeah, that's a little snarky for Anne. Well, this rather morbid walk with Miss Cordelow does set up the way that these macabre family histories help Anne end the feud with the Pringles. As you probably remember, Anne unearths a journal of an old great uncle of one of her students who had sailed with Captain Abraham. The journal heaps praise on Captain Abraham, but there is a little aside in the book about Abraham's brother, Myram. Myram reportedly told a story that when he and his crew had taken to the lifeboats after their ship had sunk, they lived on the body of a sailor who had shot himself until they were rescued. Anne thinks, of course, that's a rather gory detail, but she sends the book to the Pringle matriarchs, thinking it a kind thing to do as it's filled with adoring stories about their beloved father and knowing that the Pringle family absolutely reveres their ancestors, especially the departed ones. To Anne's surprise, the Pringle ladies are more worried about Myram's supposed cannibalism and do not want it to get out. They think Anne is trying to threaten them with that piece of info. It all gets cleared up and the Pringle-Shirley feud ends abruptly. It is funny, though, that a family so wrapped up in their history and ancestors has skeletons in their closet as well. And in fact, this gruesome story is more effective because they care so much about their family reputation. Their family reputation, which they have used as a weapon to cudgel the whole town into doing their will, is actually rather fragile. And Anne, an orphan with no family reputation and who has never needed one to make her way in the world, does not recognize the threat in the cannibalism story. So she is guileless in sending the journal to the Pringle ladies. But in the end, it worked in her favor. I mean, we also, of course, had to include the cannibalism story in our Halloween episode. It's not a creepy story bonanza without that creepy story. (laughs) I mean, I haven't read every single Ella Montgomery book yet, but I'm pretty sure this is the only one with cannibalism. (laughs) 
So to round out our scary story club, we have one more chapter in Wendy Poplar's to discuss. Late in the book, there is an almost incongruous moment that is kind of like a mini gothic story all at once with a little element of comedy in there as well. In Anne's last year at Summerside, she's invited to have dinner with Miss Minerva Tomgallon, the last remaining Tomgallon at Tomgallon House. (laughs) An enormous gothic manor that looks straight out of any haunted house story. Just listen to this description. It was on a dark, windy March evening when even the clouds scudding over the sky seemed in a hurry that Anne skimmed up the triple flight of broad, shallow steps flanked by stone urns and stonier lions that led to the massive front door of Tom Gallen House. Truly, that takes a page from the It Was a Dark and Stormy Night playbook. Miss Minerva Tomgallon is a regal elderly lady and the last of the great Tomgallon family, who used to be Summerside's royal family until the Pringles swamped them in numbers. I do think that this is an interesting detail that Maud gives us, that the Pringles have not always been the first family of Summerside. And it also speaks to that overall theme in this chapter about the cycles of life, birth, death, and everything in between. Turns out even social pecking order has a natural life cycle. Welcome to Tom Gallen House, my dear, she said, giving Anne a bony hand, likewise well sprinkled with diamonds. Miss Minerva is described as wearing clothes from an earlier time and wearing a cameo brooch inlaid with the hair of a long departed ancestor. Victorian morning jewelry often had human hair involved and seems like Miss Minerva was a fan of that. As soon as she invites Anne in, she launches right into sharing the family history. Miss Minerva shares that the reason there are so few Tom Gallons left is that they seem to have more than their share of early and tragic deaths in their family. As she tells Anne, our family, my dear, are under a curse. And the description goes on to say, Miss Minerva infused such a gruesome tinge of mystery and horror into her tones that Anne almost shivered. The curse of the Tom Gallons. What a title for a story. And here's where Maud is almost playing a little bait and switch with the reader. We know this should be right up Anne's alley. She loves a spooky story. And the opportunity to spend a whole evening hearing about the legendary curse of the Tom Gallons should thrill her. And we'll discuss a little later why it doesn't really. Miss Minerva Tom Gallon begins by recounting the tale of great-grandfather Tom Gallon, who fell and broke his neck on the grand staircase the very night of the housewarming to celebrate the completion of this home. It is a house consecrated in blood, she says. Back at Windy Poplar's, Aunt Kate later fills in for Anne the story of the curse, explaining that the great-grandfather had basically ruined the carpenter who built the house. The house had cost so much more than expected, and the Tom Gallon patriarch held him to the original contract, refusing to pay for all the expenses. Oof. (laughs) You know, Reagan, this really has all the trappings of a perfect gothic story. We have the big old spooky house, a family curse, generations of grisly deaths, and maybe even a real ghost. I know that I would have been delighted to spend an evening at Tom Gallon House, but for Anne, it's a little less fun. During the visit, Anne can't even complete a sentence because Miss Minerva keeps telling nonstop stories about her family as she gives Anne the tour of the house. While one scary story might be thrilling, dozens of them told in quick succession start to lose their effectiveness. Miss Minerva seems oddly proud of her family's curse. This is another chapter in which several anecdotes have been edited out of the Windy Poplar's version for being too scary or gory. Here's a little one as Miss Minerva shares about her great-great-grandmother. She had a very bad heart after it, and when her youngest son, my great-uncle James, shot himself in the cellar, the shock killed her. 
Uncle James did that because a girl he wished to marry threw him over. She was very beautiful. Too beautiful to be quite good, I'm afraid, my dear. It is a great temptation. I am afraid she was responsible for many a broken heart besides my poor great uncle's. So I think both the suicide and the too beautiful to be quite good implication about the girl he wanted to marry is what earned that one the axe. Yeah. What do we think that means, too beautiful to be quite good? I'm kind of reading it as an accusation about this girl's purity, which, of course, is a really unfair and sexist take. A beautiful woman can never be good because her appearance makes other people think of acts they've deemed to be sinful. Or another read here maybe is just that she knew her looks would always get her out of trouble, so she didn't really bother with being good. I think I read it as a subtle reference to her purity. I mean, the line, it is a great temptation, seems telling, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Miss Minerva leads Anne around the house for a tour of its many rooms, which Maud describes as ballroom, conservatory, billiard room, three drawing rooms, breakfast room, no end of bedrooms, and an enormous attic. They were all splendid and dismal. And while Miss Minerva gives a tour, she tells Anne another story that was cut for being too grim. This is the room my poor brother Arthur and his bride quarreled on the night he brought her home after the wedding. She just walked out and never came back. Nobody ever knew what it was all about. She was so beautiful and stately, we always called her the queen. Some people said she only married him because she couldn't hurt his feelings by saying no and repented when it was too late. It ruined my poor brother's life. He became a traveling salesman. No Tom Gallon, said Miss Minerva tragically, had ever been a traveling salesman. So what is it about that one? It doesn't seem particularly macabre, especially considering some of the stories that are left in. I don't know. Maybe it was to streamline it a bit or maybe it was a traveling salesman. I mean, that's low. I know, right? It was it was cut for being too classist. I think my take on this is that this passage maybe just felt a little out of place because it's more about like a domestic drama than anything truly grim. But I'm also wondering if underlying that fateful wedding night quarrel, there could have been something much more unseemly, like a sexual assault. I wonder if maybe a contemporary reader would have had a little more context or would have been able to read through the lines a little bit differently than we would. Okay, here's another cutscene that makes sense if we consider the sensibilities of the time and that Anne books really were targeted for young women and girls. We have an old legend that in grandfather's time, when he and grandmother were away from home, the family had a dance here one Saturday night and kept it up too late and Miss Minerva lowered her voice to a tone that made Anne's flesh creep on her bones. Satan entered. There's a queer mark on the floor in that bay window, very much like a burnt footstep. But of course, I don't really believe that story. Miss Minerva sighed as if she were very sorry she couldn't believe it. I love this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry it was cut out of the version of the book that I grew up with. I think the idea of a dance going on too late and being too much fun until the devil himself decides to attend is extremely exciting stuff. I can also maybe see this as family legend that's passed down to younger generations to keep them in line. Miss Minerva may not have believed it, but I think that if I was one of the young Tom Gallons, I definitely would have. As the night goes on, the storm outside gets worse, and soon it becomes clear that Anne will have to spend the night. Miss Minerva and Anne settle down by the fire with some knitting. 
and Miss Minerva again begins to spin the tales of the doomed family. Here's another passage cut for the American edition. It's really just a long list of family tragedies. This one had told her husband a lie, and he had never believed her again, my dear. That one had all her mourning made in expectation of her husband's death, and he had disappointed her by getting well. Oscar Tom Gallon had died and come back to life. They didn't want him to, my dear. That was the tragedy. Claude Tom Gallon had shot his son by accident. Edgar Tom Gallon had taken the wrong medicine in the dark and died in consequence. David Tom Gallon had promised his jealous dying wife he would never marry again and then had married again and was supposed to be haunted by the ghost of the jealous number one. His eyes, my dear, always staring past you at something behind you. People hated to be in the same room with him. Nobody else ever saw her, so perhaps it was only his conscience. Do you believe in ghosts, my dear? I... Of course, we have a real ghost, you know, in the North Wing, a very beautiful young girl, my great aunt Ethel, who died in the bloom of life. She longed terribly to live. She was going to be married. This is a house of tragical memories, my dear. I love this old haunted house so much. We do have a real ghost, you know, Reagan. Exactly. But do you know what my favorite Tom Gallon story is? No, tell. It's Miss Minerva's Aunt Amelia. Not my aunt really, of course, Miss Minerva explains, totally unnecessarily, by the way. I hardly think that Anne is fact-checking the family tree. But anyway, Aunt Amelia apparently was noted for her spiritual look. Do you think that means that she looked ghostly like a spirit? Or do you think that that means that she looked very like religious or pious? I sort of wish we had an annotated version of this book to clue us into how that word was used historically. Oh, that's a good question. I think as a kid, I pictured her more as like, a fortune teller. Witchy, like, maybe, right? Witchy, I think that's what witchy. I thought, too. Yeah. So Aunt Amelia was in an unhappy May-December romance, Miss Minerva tells us, and she poisoned her husband with a mushroom stew. Quote, toadstools, really. We always pretended it was an accident because murder is such a messy thing to have in a family. But we all knew the truth. <laughs> I kind of think... I kind of think that Aunt Amelia was the family witch brewing a toadstool stew in her cauldron. <laughs> Murder is such a messy thing to have in a family. <laughs> I know, it's such a great quote. When it's finally time for bed, Miss Minerva leads Anne up to a room she describes as Aunt Annabella's room. Pretty sure that is haunted in name alone. And she gives Anne a nightgown that hasn't been worn since Miss Minerva's mother died in it. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. And so this is like where the comedy creeps in, right? By this point, we've heard so many of these stories. Like, it's just funny. There are two different explanations for the tragedy that happened in that room. In the UK version of the book, before leaving Anne to sleep alone in this room, Miss Minerva throws in this last minute detail with like a, oh, I forgot to tell you. And then she elaborates, Aunt Annabella hanged herself in that closet. She had been melancholy for quite a time and finally she was not invited to a wedding she thought she should have been and it preyed on her mind Aunt Annabella always liked to be in the limelight but in the American and Canadian editions they've replaced it with this line that was previously in the list of tragedies that had also been edited out this is the room Oscar Tom Gallon came back to life in after being thought dead for two days they didn't want him to you know that was the tragedy <laughs> So you can see why maybe that story had been changed. But here's the weirdly funny thing, right? 
To promote Wendy Poplar's coming out, several chapters were published in the magazine The Family Herald and Weekly Star, including Miss Minerva's chapter under the title A Tragic Evening. But that chapter was published in the original form, including about Aunt Annabella hanging herself. So the American and Canadian public had already probably read a lot of these morbid anecdotes. And then when they finally got their edition of the book, a lot of them had been omitted. So I don't really know what they were trying to spare these people from. Right. Like the morbidness didn't stop anybody from buying the book, right? You know, I almost wonder if maybe Maud's North American editor didn't see the humor in it or maybe mm-hmm. thought it was in bad taste to pile up the tragedies that way. Like I see Maud is doing something very specific here, but I wonder if maybe her editor just didn't get it. Throughout this whole visit, Anne tries to put her positive outlook to work in the absolute avalanche of tragedy she's being swamped with, finally managing to complete a sentence and asking, Miss Tom Gallon, didn't any pleasant thing ever happen in this house? Miss Minerva admits reluctantly that they did have fun times here when she was young, but then she immediately changes the subject and asks Anne if it's true she's planning to write a book all about everyone in Summerside. When Anne denies it, Miss Minerva is disappointed, but gives Anne permission to use any of her family stories if she wants in her work, maybe by changing the names. Much like Miss Cordelow, Miss Tom Gallon feels a lot of pride in her family's grim history and would enjoy knowing that more people would get to read these stories. And we can see that Maud has been playing with the Gothic literary tradition here in Windy Poplars by absolutely flooding Anne with story after story of family tragedies. She's turning the macabre into something comic. You just don't have time to get a thrill from any of these anecdotes because Miss Minerva and her counterpart, Miss Cordelo, just keep throwing and tragedy after tragedy. It loses its horror in that volume. I was thinking about this. It really reminds me of Edward Gorey's Gashley Crumb Tinies. You remember those? It's a famous alphabet book with black and white drawings in which each letter represents a child and the bizarre way that child dies. Right. I do remember those. Right? Like being eaten by mice or smothered under a rug. Yeah. And they're, they're funny. They're actually like really cute. They're really cute. And it's funny because it's over the top and it's written like an ABC book for little kids, but it's all horrific tragedies. (laughs) And it's funny because of the sheer quantity of the morbid deaths, right? And rather than leaving Anne in awe and envy, being swamped by the Tom Gallon tragedies leads Anne to write Gilbert saying, oh, Gilbert, no matter how old we get in years to come, don't let's ever see life as all tragedy and revel in it. I think I'd hate a house 120 years old. I hope when we get our house of dreams, it will either be new, ghostless, and traditionless, or if that can't be, at least have been occupied by reasonably happy people. At the very end of the book, Miss Minerva Tom Gallon gives Anne a lovely aquamarine ring, which luckily belonged to Miss Minerva herself and not one of the tragic victims of the curse. Oh, seriously? Anne thinks, Tom Gallon House is certainly very splendid, especially now when its grounds are all a leaf and a flower, but I wouldn't give my as-yet-unfounded house of dreams for Tom Gallon House and grounds with the ghosts thrown in. <laughs> If you think back to the Anne from the beginning of Green Gables, who couldn't imagine anything more romantic than a graveyard full of buried hopes, we can see how she's changed. And whether it's the overwhelming number of tragedies she's bombarded with that changes her, or just the life experiences she's been having, the maturity she's developed, but she no longer finds this a romantic and thrilling experience. She's hoping for a future now. She's looking forward to writing her own story as a wife and a mother, and she wants it to be a sweet and happy one, not a melodramatic and tragic one. 
But I do think it's interesting that Maude gave us these chapters in Windy Poplars that are kind of spooky and in an almost comic way. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about why that could be. So this is the birch path that I have been waiting for. As some of you listeners may know, I'm a big fan of gothic storytelling. I love a creepy vibe. I love a haunted house. I love a doomed romance. I love generations of family secrets locked away in an ancient chest in an attic covered in spiderwebs. <laughs> and of course, nothing is better than getting to enjoy a good creepy gothic story in October. So I'm going to walk us through sort of a brief history of gothic novels, and then we can talk a little bit about how this sort of applied to what Maude was doing in Windy Poplars. I am very excited about this because these are books I do not gravitate to. So I really don't have a lot of experience with the Gothic tradition. Well, the first Gothic novel came out in 1764. It was titled The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. The jacket copy, at least on my edition, will give you a pretty good idea of what the reader is in for. It says, On the day of his wedding, Conrad, heir to the house of Otranto, is killed under mysterious circumstances. Fearing the end of his dynasty, his father, Manfred, determines to marry Conrad's betrothed Isabella himself, until a series of supernatural events stands in his way. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just already laughing. A giant helmet falls from the moon, a portrait sighs, a statue bleeds, and spirits warn of impending tragedy as the curse on Manfred's house inexorably works itself out. Regan, if you can't already tell, this book is totally bananas. I read it first in college, and it's almost comedic to read it with contemporary eyes because we know all of these tropes so well, it kind of reads like a parody of itself, right? But really, this is the originator of the genre. The Castle of Otranto is surreal. It's campy. It just hits the ground running, and it goes so much harder than you would ever expect. But Otranto also set up so many of those basic tropes that we associate with the Gothic, right? There's a creepy castle, a cursed family, and most of all, a heavy, foreboding, and gloomy atmosphere. It also establishes that a lot of the primary themes that make Gothic stories so compelling are the tensions between social restraint, like being socially proper, and violent or erotic impulse. And of course, also all manner of like psychological distress, like fear and obsession, secrets and shame. So the characters in a gothic novel are always haunted. And it's up to the reader to discover if they are haunted by actual supernatural entities or by the weight of their own desire or their own guilt. Oftentimes in these stories, one kind of haunting begets the other. Walpole's Otranto was considered a bit heretical for being a supernatural story in a rational age. But by the latter part of the 18th century, other authors did take inspiration from Otranto and also wrote stories of real people or people who felt real, right? People who felt like contemporaries who were experiencing the supernatural. And that was all sort of written as an allegory for a person's mental state. So in the 1790s, the godmother of Gothic fiction, Anne Radcliffe, came on the scene. Radcliffe's novels were enormously popular when they came out. Probably the one that's most read now is called The Mysteries of Udolpho, which I read when I was about 13 because I was a little weirdo. I'm sure I only understood about half of it, but I was tantalized and thrilled all the same. 
Radcliffe kept many of the same tropes that Walpole established in Otranto, such as an isolated setting with semi-supernatural phenomenon. However, her novels prominently featured young women protagonists battling through terrifying ordeals while struggling to be with their true loves. So her books, which are sometimes categorized in the subgenre gothic romance, gave women readers an outlet to explore desire in a safe and societally permissible way. These novels brought thrills and chills and romance and erotic to women who typically led very cloistered lives. And Radcliffe's novels were so enormously popular in her own time that they inspired some of our other favorite authors. So, for example, Jane Austen wrote Northanger Abbey, which is kind of a parody of the genre, but even if you miss the parody completely, it also totally works as a gothic romance in its own right. And then, of course, we have the Bronte sisters, right? Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which brought us the enduring madwoman in the attic trope, and Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, which, you know, of course, features hallucinations, unsolved riddles and family secrets, and, of course, Catherine's actual ghost. (laughs) So all of these women would lead to our queen of gothic horror, Mary Shelley, who lived her own life like the heroine of a gothic novel. One of my favorite Mary Shelley stories is that apparently she had sex with her not quite yet husband on her mother's grave. Oh, that is really gothic. Yeah, Mary went hard. (laughs) A little perverse. A little perverse, for sure. Actually, there's some really interesting quotes about Mary's relationship with her mother. Mary Shelley's mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, right? Who's kind of like the proto-feminist who wrote the pamphlet A Vindication on the Rights of Women. However, Mary Wollstonecraft died when Mary Shelley was very young. And so Mary Shelley would tell people that she felt like she was raised by a tombstone. Um, She had a really sort of intense connection with her mother who was dead. Wow. I love the story of how Mary Shelley's most famous novel came to be because it's a gothic tale in its own right. So I'll tell it real quickly. I'm sure that some of our listeners are already familiar, but what happened was Lord Byron, who was dating Mary Shelley's stepsister, invited Mary and her husband, the romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, to join them in Lake Geneva in 1816. Now, 1816 was the famous year without a summer due to wild volcanic activity on the other side of the earth. So what was supposed to be a sunny summer vacay turned into weeks of unrelenting gloom. One dark and stormy night, literally, they were sitting around the fire telling ghost stories and Byron challenged the group to each write their own ghost story. Mary Shelley, of course, wrote Frankenstein. I love that story. And is it true that the... Other guys all involved in this writing challenge didn't even finish anything. I think so. One of the other people who was there was Byron's personal physician, a guy named Dr. Polidori. And he wrote a book, I think it was called The Vampire. And that was supposed to be sort of an early inspiration for Dracula. So let it not be said that the only important work of fiction that came out of that night was Frankenstein. But certainly, you know, that's the big one. Gothic storytelling is especially powerful for women because it gives them a way to engage with the very real horrors of moving through the world in a body that feels like it is never fully yours to possess. Women are often physically at the mercy of the men in their lives, and physical and sexual assault are very real horrors. Pregnancy and childbirth are also risky endeavors even today. And so a perfect example of this is in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's 1892 short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. 
In that story, a new mother locked in a room to convalesce after giving birth is terrorized by the unnatural figures in the wallpaper. They're all creeping around her and moving in strange and eerie ways. But that book is a horrifying allegory for women in a patriarchal society where women are in control of neither their bodies nor their minds. So gothics, which are all about feeling unsafe or uneasy in your own home, like this sense of I'm at home. Everything should be fine. I'm well taken care of. I'm well protected and loved. But that like deep knowing sense that something is wrong. Gothics are really reflecting back to women readers their lived experience. And they do it in this way that may seem entertaining and even kind of like thrilling and tantalizing, but they're still hitting on this much deeper truth. So I really associate this genre strongly with women authors and readers, but there were plenty of men who also did contribute to the genre, of course. Edgar Allan Poe mastered the horror genre with his stories that were as much about human psychology, grief, guilt, and loss, and fear as they were the supernatural. We have Wilkie Collins' Woman in White, which likewise is a story about identity and insanity. There's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, which similarly explores theme about that sort of dual nature of identity, right? The socially acceptable self that's always in conflict with the id, the part of the self that's driven by desire and impulse. And then the 19th century came to a close with two absolute masterworks of the gothic horror genre. So that would be Bram Stoker's Dracula and Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. For my money, The Turn of the Screw is the best of a great bunch. There's a creepy house, creepy kids, creepy spirits, and worst of all, no one is telling you the truth. I get shivers just thinking about Miss Jessel's ghost. The middle of the 20th century saw a renaissance in gothic literature, and I think it makes sense that Windy Poplars was also published amidst this re-emerging trend for the gothic. I honestly think that's why this book has some of those spooky elements, right? Oh, that makes sense. She's writing to what the readers at the time were really excited and interested about. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, it was really common at that time for short stories to be published in magazines that had these sort of spooky sort of light horror themes. So Maud was very much writing with that trend. Well, the other thing, she was kind of pressured into writing Windy Poplars and giving more Anne. So I wonder whether there's a little bit of her doing something fun and interesting for herself, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing something else new into the story just to kind of keep it interesting for herself as a writer. I'm speculating. I have no idea. No, I think that's probably right. You know, we talk about this book Wendy Poplar is sort of feeling like an outlier in the Anne series, just so tonally different. And certainly these chapters we're discussing in this episode contribute to that. And so if Maud is sort of working in this realm of the gothic renaissance, she's working on something that she thinks is interesting and fun, even if it's totally out of keeping with what she was writing 20 years previous, that all sort of lines up for me. So also in the late 1920s and early 1930s, we have H.P. Lovecraft, and he's using gothic elements as he's crafting his Cthulhu mythos. And then in 1938, just a couple years after this book is published, Daphne du Maurier's novel Rebecca became immensely popular. And of course, that was later developed into a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Rebecca truly has all the elements we love. A beautiful young bride in a gorgeous manor house, isolated and eerie, haunted by the first wife. And it is a deeply disturbing psychological thriller full of suspicion and jealousy and fear. In Anya Seton's 1944 novel Dragonwick, a mysterious suitor and a spooky mansion set the scene to explore ideas about class. And later, Shirley Jackson used gothic tropes to explore themes of otherness and alienation in We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House. 
In The Haunting of Hill House, a supernatural investigator rents a house where violent deaths have occurred in an attempt to prove that ghosts are real. And I'm telling you, Reagan, this book is 99% atmosphere and 1% ghosts, but it is still incredibly scary. In true gothic fashion, the reader never gets confirmation of an actual haunting, and it's up to the reader to determine if the apparently supernatural elements were all caused by the character's paranoia, fear, and emotional distress. I mean, that's really what the gothic is all about. This idea of what is real and what is in your mind. You know, what are you being paranoid about? Where has your fear taken you? And I kind of think that a gothic novel that spells out the boogeyman in the room too much is just doing too much. You don't need to do that. They're all about atmosphere and they're all about sort of that internal struggle. And then likewise, a lot of times they're about that tension between what's socially proper, what what are the societal norms versus what are your less safe desires. So let me ask you this. If the scary stuff is more explicit, is that then more in the horror genre than gothic? Yeah, I think what's the overlap there? There's a ton of overlap there. I mean, gothic is kind of a horror subgenre, right? But I think if it is scares for scares sake, that's horror. I think gothic is actually doing something really particular when they're getting into the psychological thriller aspect of it. And certainly anything where there's tension between what society deems to be proper versus what the main character may be wanting to do instead. Oh, very interesting. I don't really think that gothic literature has fallen out of favor since the 20th century. I mean, certainly all of these tropes are absolutely ubiquitous across the horror genre. Some of our most popular authors like Stephen King and Anne Rice, Joyce Carol Oates and Neil Gaiman, Alice Monroe and Margaret Atwood. I mean, all of these people are including gothic elements in their storytelling just sort of as a matter of course, right? We're really used to this by now. And I've also really enjoyed seeing how the gothic genre is evolving in the 21st century. For instance, in Carmen Maria Machado's wildly innovative genre-defying memoir in The Dream House, this is a book where the house in question is a house of dreams with your loved one. It's also kind of like a carnival fun house, and then it slowly turns into a terrifying haunted house. And the house is also a metaphor for domestic abuse in a queer relationship. Reagan, I have to say, this barely scratches the surface of a genre that has fascinated me for most of my reading life. There is so much more I could talk about. I didn't mention William Faulkner or the Southern Gothic or Gogol and the Russian Gothic or most fun for my money, the lasting influence of the Gothic in romance, right? We have... <laughs> So many amazing, brilliant gothic romances. I mean, that's really where you get that tension between like sex and shame and paranoia and all of that. That's really fun stuff. But I'll stop there because I think I've given you all plenty of inspiration for your Halloween reading. So happy hauntings, kindred spirits. Kelly, that was fascinating because, as I said, this is an area of literature I generally do not explore. It doesn't tend to be where my interest lies. And since I was never an English major, I usually didn't have to read any of those types of books. So this was really fun for me to learn about. Well, surprising no one, when I got to college, declared my English major and started looking through the course catalog for classes to sign up for, I immediately tried to sign up for a gothic literature class. Only it was like a 400 told, class. Yes, only to be told that it was for upperclassmen only. I had to wait an excruciating three years to take it. <laughs> you can take English 101. Yeah, exactly. They put me back in my place. They're like, you need to learn about the history of British literature first. I was like, oh, ghosts. <laughs> Let's turn our attention to some puffed sleeve moments. That is fun little extras that we don't need to include as part of this episode, but we want to. So I'm going to change the tone a little bit. And here's at least one funny story packed in amongst all the tragedies. 
Miss Cordelow tells the story to Anne when they're wandering in the graveyard. She says, this is Herb Pringle's grave. He was one of the jolly Pringles. He always made you laugh. He laughed right out in church once when the mouse dropped out of the flowers on Meta Pringle's hat when she bowed in prayer. I didn't feel much like laughing. I didn't know where the mouse had gone. Herb sat behind me and such a shout he gave. People who couldn't see the mouse thought he'd gone crazy. It seemed to me that laugh of his couldn't die. Oh, gosh. And then there's a funny callback to this little story later. In the Windy Willows version, as Anne is taking her goodbye walk in the graveyard just before she leaves, she wonders if Stephen Pringle's eyes are still open in the ground. But in the Windy Poplar's version, Anne wonders if Herbert Pringle still occasionally chuckled to himself in his grave. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, for my puff sleeve moment, I'm not sure how many more Halloween stories we can pack into this episode, so I'll just share a story that's a little less spooky, but definitely still funny. So while Miss Minerva is taking Anne on the seemingly never-ending tour of Tom Gallen House, she tells Anne all about the lavish parties they used to throw. Quote, the Tom Gallen balls were famous. People came from all over the island for them. That chandelier cost my father $500. Miss Minerva pointed to a corner of the room and told Anne that her great aunt Patience died while dancing at a ball one night, and it later came out that she was suffering from a broken heart. Miss Minerva certainly would never, and she tells Anne, quote, I cannot imagine any girl breaking her heart over a man. Men have always seemed to me such trivial creatures. Trust the stately Miss Minerva not to get her feathers ruffled by men. Oh, I love that. Well, let's move into our Inspired by Anne section. Let's talk about what the spooky edition of the podcast inspires. I have two things that are inspired by the spooky episode, and both are games, so you can have a haunted game night with your friends and family. Yes, haunted games. The first is one of our favorite games, and I know it's one of yours too, Kelly, because we have played it many times all together with our husbands. It's called Betrayal at the House on the Hill, and it's a semi-cooperative board game in which the players are explorers in a haunted house where creepy things are happening. You kind of build the house as you go by discovering room tiles and lots of weird, morbid, strange things happen. And then halfway through the game, there's a big twist and it's different every time you play and one group member becomes the traitor. So the second half of the game, the traitor and the rest of the group are now working against each other to see who survives the haunted house. It is such a clever game, and it's so cool how it plays out differently every time. We've probably played this game 20 times at least, and it's different every time. Yeah, there's also an expansion pack for it. So once you have played out all of the scenarios, then you can go and buy a bunch more. We haven't played out all the scenarios yet. We did buy the expansion pack anyway, <laughs> just because we had to see what else was in store. I, I don't know, Reagan. Yeah, we have played this game a bunch and it is so fun. It really is. We've played it with lots of different people too, because if you're playing with people who've never really played a cooperative style game before, this is a great intro to that. And it's so beautifully themed right it uses all of these sort of like horror themes and horror tropes yeah my husband always insists that whenever we play it we dim the lights and light lots of flickering candles for atmosphere Oh, yeah. You have to bring on the whole mood. Well, so the other game is a much shorter game. The Betrayal at House on the Hill is fun, but it's a little bit more of a commitment of a game. You need to set aside at least an hour. Oh, yeah. But the other is a card game and it's called Gloom. And this card game is very Edward Gorey-esque. 
In this card game, the goal is to make your family as miserable as possible with all sorts of silly and strange little tragedies and then kill them off. Then you are also trying to make good and happy things happen to your opponent's family. So whoever manages to kill off all the members of their family while making the worst things happen to them is the winner. It's very fun and very silly and over the top. And the cards are very cool and they're sort of seethed through transparent. So you get this kind of cool layering effect when you play them on each other's cards. So, and they've got really cool illustrations. I think maybe even Miss Minerva might enjoy playing this game. Please, this would be right up her alley, just adding tragedy upon tragedy to all these family members. Although, you know, the funny <laughs> thing, like I'm almost picturing it now, you'd never be able to finish the game because you'd put a card down and it would say like, drowned in the stream and Miss Minerva would pipe up. You know, my great uncle James actually did drown in a stream. Right. This would just be more fodder for conversation for her. <laughs> Those are both amazing recommendations, Reagan. Gloom is really such a fun little game with gorgeous illustrations. It has that same sort of so much tragedy, it's funny aspect that we've been talking about this whole episode. So truly perfect recommendation. I also have brought two inspired by us today. First, I encourage our listeners to spend some time in a local cemetery or resting place. Many towns have historical cemeteries with locally famous occupants, and you can find a self-guided tour of those cemeteries at your local historical society or even at the cemetery itself. And if you live in a city, there is likely some kind of official tour you can take of your city's most famous cemetery. So for example, here in Los Angeles, there are tons of options for tours of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And I think these kinds of tours are really interesting. It's a good way to get to know your local history better and you can kind of live out your own Miss Cordelo style moment. And if a tour of a cemetery isn't really your thing, maybe it's time to visit the resting place of a loved one and clean up their memorial stone and spend some time thinking about happy memories with them. And of course, whatever you choose to do, remember to be respectful of graves and mourners when walking in cemeteries. My second inspired by is equally grim. <laughs> But it's it's important. And that's to go ahead and finally make a plan for your own end of life. So my husband and I this week are working on filling out the Five Wishes workbook, which you can find online at fivewishes.org. And that prompts you to answer questions about your end of life care. So that will include information pertaining to an advanced healthcare directive, what should happen to your body after you pass, and appointing a person who can make those decisions on your behalf if for some reason you aren't able to. So confronting those questions and filling out those forms can be really emotional and challenging, but you know, it is a wonderful gift to give to your family and friends so they know how to respect your wishes when the time comes. Yeah, that's really so important. And I think there are conversations many people often want to avoid or just save till later. And sometimes you can't be sure when later is going to come. Yeah. And, you know, communication is love. I like that. Well, on that very cheerful note, <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, Kindred Spirits. Next episode, it's going to be a big tonal shift, and we're going to be talking all about the romances in Windy Poplars and how Anne has varying success in meddling with them. We hope you have a fun, safe, and happy Halloween and enjoy trick-or-treating, haunted houses, scary movies, or whatever you like to do to celebrate this time of year. We really appreciate your support of the podcast, and we hope you will share it with friends and family who may also be Kindred Spirit. Remember, if you review Kindred Spirits Book Club podcasts on Apple Podcasts or share about us on social media, we will send you a sticker with our logo. 
If you do review and share, simply send us an email with your screenshot to kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com. You can also follow us and DM us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Thanks, everyone. Happy hauntings. 